Bud Selig had uh, six doctors uh, after the Andro or whatever it was was found in McGuire's locker in Pittsburgh. That's National Baseball writer Richard Justice, referring to an incident in 1998 where a bottle of androstein dione, a legal over-the-counter testosterone supplement, was found in the locker of St. Louis Cardinals slugger Mark McGuire, who that summer was chasing down Roger Maris's single-season home run record. And uh, had six doctors do a report. And Bud said he was just hitting the gut by one of the doctors said, Commissioner, if you don't do something, players are going to die, and you're going to have to call up a parent. You're going to have to call up a player's mother and explain why you didn't do something. Baseball's dead ball era generally refers to the period before 1920 where home runs were rare and small ball dominated strategy. Rules changes in 1920 and the emergence of Babe Ruth helped usher in a new era of offense. By the late 1970s and early 80s, baseball was back in a period dubbed by some baseball historians as the new dead ball era. Home run totals were relatively low, small ball techniques were commonplace in the game, and pitching had the upper hand. The steroid era brought this new dead ball period to a screeching halt in the mid-1980s, with 1987 serving as an extreme example. Of the six seasons in the 1980s in which a player hit 44 or more home runs, four of those came in 1987, including Mark McGuire of the Oakland Athletics setting what was then a rookie record of 49. Eight out of the top 15 and 14 of the top 25 best player seasons of OPS in the 80s occurred in 1987, and an MLB record 79 players hit 20 or more home runs. That was a mark that wouldn't be broken until 1996, the beginning of a run of nine straight seasons of 80-plus players surpassing 20 round-trippers. Six members of the Chicago Cubs alone hit career highs in home runs in 1987. This is not to say that any of these players were for sure using steroids. The mystery of the offensive explosion in 1987 is now considered mostly a product of what has been dubbed the rabbit ball an irregularity in the production of the baseball that led to the ball flying further. But it foreshadowed changes to come in baseball. The Oakland Bash brothers of McGuire and Jose Canseco were here to usher in an era of home run hitting that was unlike anything baseball had ever seen. And while it briefly led to a resurgence in baseball's popularity, before long, it would threaten to tear the national pastime apart. This is Secondary League. The Rise and Fall of Ken Caminiti, a 10-part series on the life and career of one of the most important baseball players of the 80s and 90s. If you like this show, please click subscribe and leave a rating or a review. And now, Chapter 3, Major League Beginnings. The Houston Astros got a glimpse of their future on July 16, 1987. During the All-Star break, the team had called up Gerald Young and Ken Caminiti from the minor leagues, and they were slotted first and seventh in manager Hal Lanier's lineup, respectively. The Astros were one game over the 500 mark on the season and were looking for a hot streak to reach the playoffs for the second straight season. In 1986, Houston went 49-25 in the second half and won the NL West. They hoped the infusion of Young and Caminiti to the veteran lineup could light a similar spark. On the day off after the 1987 All-Star Game in Oakland, the
the Astros held a team workout at the Astrodome. Lanier's travel plans were interrupted when a connecting flight in Salt Lake City was delayed, and he missed the workout, but Ken was there for his first big league workout. This was not the first time that Caminiti had stepped foot in the Dome's home clubhouse. While touring with the 1984 Olympic team, Team USA occupied that space. Their first opponent after the break was the Philadelphia Phillies, a team with some big bats but not enough pitching to compete in the loaded NL East. The Phillies threw young right-hander Kevin Gross against Houston veteran Danny Darwin, who was taking Nolan Ryan's turn in the rotation. In the days before the internet, if you didn't have a satellite dish, watching an out-of-market Major League Baseball game was virtually impossible. Almost 1,900 miles away from the Astrodome, the Caminitis didn't have a dish, but they devised a way to know what was happening. Lee Caminiti had a co-worker who happened to be in Houston that day, and he would receive calls in between innings to give him an update on how his son was doing. The friend also arranged to tape the game off a sports bar's television system. Caminiti needed exactly one batter to introduce himself to Houston Astros fans, as Phillies leadoff batter Juan Sam Well hit a sharp grounder to third. Ken made a diving grab and threw a cross to first baseman Glenn Davis for the out. The sparkling defense that would be his trademark at the hot corner was on display on the very first play of his career. He came to bat for the first time in the bottom of the second inning and grounded out to Juan Samuel at second base. The game was still scoreless in the bottom of the fifth, with Caminiti scheduled to lead off. Gross had already issued four walks in the game, but hadn't allowed a hit. The Phillies' right-hander grooved a 2-1 fastball that changed that. Two balls and a strike to Caminiti. A high drive, deep right center, watch it, it's off the wall, Caminiti's going to head for third, his first big league hit is going to be a stand-up triple, holy Toledo! That was the call from Astros broadcaster Milo Hamilton, breaking out his signature holy Toledo for Cammy's first big league hit. However, Ken was stranded on base to end the inning after Gerald Young lined into an inning-ending double play with runners on first and third. Philadelphia took a 1-0 lead in the top of the sixth when Von Hayes brought in a run with a double play ground out. That was still the score in the bottom of the seventh when Caminiti faced Gross again with one out and the bases empty. He went to San Jose State where he hit 348 as a junior. Got all of that. One. I don't know. I think he's on top of the world right now. He should be. After the home run, the Houston fans went wild and asked for a curtain call. Caminiti obliged by emerging from the dugout and tipping his cap to the crowd of 19,614. I'd never done that before, Caminiti told reporters afterward of his curtain call. The special day was far from over for Caminiti who made a few other nice plays at third base throughout the game. With the score still even at 1-1 in the bottom of the ninth, he drew a one-out walk against Mike Jackson and displayed his base running ability by going first to third on a Craig Reynolds single. An intentional walk loaded the bases for Gerald Young. Rather than a double play, this time, Young lined the first pitch from Jackson into right field for a base hit. Caminiti scored with the winning run. The Astros won 2-1 and moved one and a half games out of first place behind Cincinnati. The lead written by the Associated Press says it all.
Houston's Ken Caminiti felt as high as the roof in the Astrodome after hitting a home run, a triple, and scoring the winning run in his first Major League game. Brad Ausmus played 18 years in the Major Leagues and was Caminiti's teammate in the mid-90s. The two things that stand out is what a great teammate he was uh, in the sense that he only wanted to win and he treated everyone the same. And the, the second thing, and I can kind of remember this vividly, is because he played with such passionate aggression, he forced his teammates to play as hard as he did, which is saying a lot. Uh, and baseball is very rare. Baseball, it's not like football, which can be very emotional on the field, or, or even basketball. Um, I guess hockey, not as much, but uh, baseball, you know, it's always the marathon mental approach, not the sprint. So uh, for a person to have that type of impact on his teammates' psyches in terms of how they go about their business, I think is extremely rare. Caminiti stayed hot, picking up two hits in each of the next two games. Through his first nine games in the major leagues, Ken was hitting 371 with two home runs, two doubles, one triple, and four RBIs. As a result, Ken was named National League Player of the Week, a rare honor for a rookie, let alone one in his very first week in the major leagues. Unfortunately, the Astros couldn't replicate their post-All-Star success from 1986 and went just three and six in those games. Following the hot start, he fell into a deep slump for the remainder of the season, hitting just 220 with one home run in his final 54 games. The Astros finished the season 76 and 86 in a distant third place in the NL West, though Kami did his best to collect hits in Houston's final four games for a positive personal finish. He hit 246 as a rookie with three home runs, 23 RBIs, and struck out in over 20% of his plate appearances. 1987 was also a memorable year for Ken for reasons that had nothing to do with the game of baseball. On November 14th, he married his high school sweetheart, Nancy Smith. They met in the ninth grade and dated throughout high school, college, and his first professional years. By 1985, the couple was engaged to be married, but waited to tie the knot until Nancy had finished her degree at San Jose State. Ken is described by all who knew him as a loving and devoted family man, and his wedding to Nancy would have ranked as one of the top moments in his life. Dana Corey was Ken's teammate at San Jose State, attended the wedding ceremony, and Richard Justice is a national baseball writer for MLB.com. Ken loved his family, you know, loved his mom and dad and his brother and sister, loved Nancy and the girls. He was so tough. He was such a tough person. And yet there was such a kindness in him. You would see him around his girls and he would, his heart would melt. And there was a softness about him. In September 1987, arbitrator Thomas Roberts dealt Major League Baseball and its team owners a major blow although it was one that MLB brought upon itself. The chain of events which ultimately led to Robert's ruling and a complete change in the landscape of Major League Baseball is chronicled well by Maury Brown in Rob Nyer's Big Book of Baseball Blunders. On October 22, 1985, baseball owners met at the headquarters of Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis. Commissioner Peter Uberoff delivered a stern lecture to club owners that they should be seeking team profitability instead of trying to win. He even told them at one point, you are so damned dumb. 
A lot of this rhetoric came from Yubaroth trying to assert himself after the losses in the 1985 two-day strike. There was a lot of anger directed at him from owners, and he was trying to show that his business savvy could be translated into the baseball world. He had lost a battle with players, but was determined to win the war. The old franchise ownership dynamic was teams would operate at losses or just break even for long stretches, with owners making money on their investments if and when they eventually sold the team. It was on rare occasions that a team would actually make a significant amount of money in a regular season. Some owners, notably the Haas family in Oakland, didn't necessarily care if the team made money, but considered the team a community asset and committed to funding the team for the good of the city. Ubroth was from the business world and didn't like the idea of teams losing money when they could be profitable. Several weeks after the St. Louis summit, Ubroth told team officials at the GM meetings in Tarpon Springs, Florida, quote, it's not smart to sign long-term contracts. They force clubs to want to make similar signings. Don't be dumb. We have a five-year agreement with labor. His message was received loud and clear by teams. Do whatever possible to keep player salaries down. Merv Rettmond was Caminiti's hitting coach in San Diego and Atlanta and was a player rep in the union for the Big Red Machine Cincinnati Reds in 1975. I remember I was a player rep one time with the Cincinnati Reds, so this had to be 75. So that's a long time ago. And Marvin Miller was the head of our union, and we were talking about the ballparks being smaller. They were building them, but they were building them smaller. And Marvin said that it's their goal, the owner's goal, to not have fans go to the game. They're only interested in the television contract. He also said, and this is looking a little bit shaky, he said if the owners don't like uh, free agency, all they have to do is make everyone a free agent at the end of the year. You flood the market with them, the prices go down. That's in his book. Isn't that something? Instead of that complete chaos, teams resorted to collusion. There was a tacit agreement among owners not to sign other teams' free agents. In the 1985-86 offseason, there were 33 free agent players, but only four of those signed with new teams. The only reason that those four signed with new teams was that their former teams no longer wanted them. Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk got a nibble of interest from Yankees owner George Steinbrenner, but the offer was withdrawn after Chicago White Sox chairman Jerry Reinsdorf complained. Reinsdorf and Milwaukee Brewers owner Bud Selig were two of the strongest supporters of collusion among baseball owners. After years of double-digit salary growth, player salaries increased only 5% during the offseason. Furthermore, owners colluded to limit active rosters to 24 players instead of 25. In February 1986, Players Union Chief Donald Fear filed the MLBPA's first grievance, known as Collusion 1. As that played out, the 1986-87 offseason presented a new round of collusion. Future Hall of Famers Jack Morris, Tim Raines, and Andre Dawson all fell victim, with Dawson famously offering to sign a blank contract with the Chicago Cubs. Already a three-time All-Star, he signed a one-year contract with the Cubs for $500,000 and went on to win MVP. The average free agent salary declined by 16%, while MLB reported revenue increased 15%. In February 1987, the union filed a second grievance, Collusion 2. Despite the jig being up, Ubaroth continued to press owners to keep payrolls and contracts small. 
He told owners if they wanted to offer a contract longer than three years, quote, I want you to come and tell me eyeball to eyeball that you're going to do it. The irony of all of this is that in sports today, teams are quick to sign young players to long multi-year contracts early in their careers because it helps them pay a below market rate for their services. When Thomas Roberts issued his ruling on Collusion 1 in September 1987, he found the owners guilty as charged of collusion, with the announcement of damages to come later. Uberoth and MLB still didn't get the message, as the modes of Collusion 1 and 2 were eventually ditched in favor of an information bank. If a team was to offer a free agent a contract, they would report the details to the Players' Relations Committee. Every other team in the league could access that information from the PRC, which as Maury Brown described it, collusion in sheep's clothes. The information bank is known as Collusion 3. Damages announced from Collusion 1 in February 1988 awarded seven players a new-look free agency, meaning that they were free to sign with other teams. In that group, Kirk Gibson notably jumped from the Detroit Tigers to the Los Angeles Dodgers and went on to win NL MVP. It was also ruled that MLB had cheated players out of $10.6 million. Adding in the damages from the guilty decisions in collusions 2 and 3, which came later, owners were on the hook for $280 million. Between the rulings in collusions 1 and 2, Peter Uberoth resigned as commissioner on April 1, 1989. He was replaced by National League President Bart Giamatti. 154 days after becoming commissioner, Giamatti made his lasting impact on the game by banning Pete Rose for life for gambling on baseball. Giamatti tragically passed away from a heart attack at age 51 on September 1, 1989. Twelve days later, Faye Vincent assumed the commissioner's chair and was charged with cleaning up Uberoth's mess. Heading into spring training in 1988, Ken Caminiti was fighting for a spot on the Astros' opening day roster. In January, he said, Lots of people I've talked to seem to think I have the job wrapped up. That's just not true. I'm going to go into spring training with the attitude I had when I got here. Houston manager Hal Lanier said that he considered third base an open position. Caminiti would either be the full-time starting third baseman, or he would be in the minor leagues. He didn't want to use Ken as a platoon player. It's strange to consider platooning a switch hitter, since they always have an advantage against the pitcher they're facing. But as a rookie, Caminiti struggled from the left side of the plate. He hit just 184 against right-handed pitching and had a 470 OPS in 110 plate appearances. Against left-handers, he hit 310 with a 779 OPS in 108 plate appearances. In modern baseball thinking, it's easy to dismiss these results as resulting from a super small sample size but there are a few things to consider. The first is that in 1987, that concept was not mainstream in baseball thinking. And second, Hal Lanier was there and managed Caminiti on a day-in, day-out basis. All statistics should be used in conjunction with the eye test, and for a baseball lifer like Lanier, Caminiti's batting from the left side did not pass that test. Newspapers at the time frequently cited his 184 batting average against righties as if it were completely representative of his true talent, and that's a ludicrous conclusion to make. Throughout his career, Ken batted nearly 263 as a left-handed hitter and 290 as a righty. He also hit for more power as a right-handed batter, contributing to an OPS that was 45 points better from that side of the plate. This is expected as Caminiti was a natural right-handed batter 
and said he often felt like a nerd batting lefty. But even as Lanier and the Astros worried about his bat, there was never a question about his glove. Merv Rettman played with Brooks Robinson, one of the greatest of all time at third base with the Baltimore Orioles. We had a scout, Dave Garcia. He's an old, old-time baseball guy. He's a manager of the Angels, but he would come out every day and watch Cam Lenny just take ground balls. The guy, he said he's the best he's ever seen, and I can't argue that. I played with Brooks for six years, you know. Um, Brooks, he was great, but this guy had uh, athletic abilities that were staggering. Brooks, he, at third base, just a lot like Caminetti. Uh, in respect that, he didn't catch a lot of balls clean. He would block them or they would hit him and he'd fall in front of him, and then he had the ability to get rid of the ball fast. And by the all-star break, both of them from the waist down were black. They were black and blue. I mean, the balls had hit him and they'd hemorrhage so bad, you know what I mean? They looked terrible, both of them. But, but as the other, uh, Caminetti was more of an athlete. He was faster. He had a tremendous arm. Everybody knows that. Uh, he could do, he could make plays down there, jumping and all that stuff. Brooksy could go to his right. Tremendous, tremendous. And if you notice, the one thing that helped him out in Baltimore, he always had a great shortstop. So he didn't have to go to his left. He could overplay his one side. And um, he, I mean, and every throw he made was a semi-weak throw, but it always got the runner out by half a step. Ken got off to a quick start in Grapefruit League exhibition games in spring training, but he ultimately lost the starting third base job to Denny Walling. Beyond his performance, Caminiti was disciplined by manager Hallinier for repeatedly showing up late. After completely missing picture day on February 29th, Caminiti showed up to the Astros' March 20th exhibition game with the Minnesota Twins 30 minutes late. Lanier scratched Cammy from the lineup and fined him $500. It's fair, Ken called it, noting that Lanier's message was sent loud and clear. If it happens again, I'm out of here. By the last week of spring training, Ken's playing time was getting less and less. He hit home runs from both sides of the plate in a game against the Philadelphia Phillies on March 30th, but the next day was sent down to AAA Tucson. Caminiti was hurt by the move. He said, I think if they wanted me to play there, they would have let me take more at-bats and work with me more. This is probably the biggest downer. It hurts. Ken was assigned to start the year with AAA Tucson and spent much of the year manning the hot corner for the Toros in the Pacific Coast League. He got off to a fast start, but in early May, he tore a ligament in his right thumb, which caused him to miss a week. When he returned, Ken struggled for a month, and his batting average dipped 30 points. Even in his early playing days, injuries took a toll. In 1985, Ken played with a right shoulder injury for several months. He dealt with knee problems in 1986, and his left shoulder still bothered him from the home plate collision in college. The thumb ligament tear in 88 was just another in a growing list of injuries which threatened to hamper his development as a player. The injury and subsequent slump came in a bad time for Caminiti. Denny Walling went on the disabled list with an injury, and his backup Chuck Jackson was sent down to the minor leagues. On June 16th, Astros general manager Bill Wood traded a minor league pitcher to the Cincinnati Reds and acquired 36-year-old third baseman Buddy Bell. It was around that time that Ken returned to form, and as the end of July approached, Ken was hitting 272 with Tucson and was among league leaders in doubles and RBIs. 
Slugging first baseman Glenn Davis went down with a hamstring injury, which forced the Astros to move Bell to first and call up Caminiti from AAA. Sitting four and a half games behind the eventual 1988 World Series champion Los Angeles Dodgers on July 29th, Caminiti made his first appearance of the season with the Houston Astros against those Dodgers. In the top of the eighth inning at Dodger Stadium, while batting left-handed, Ken collected an RBI single to push Houston ahead 3-1, the game's final score. Ken struggled after that game and was hitting just 176 in mid-August when Walling returned from the disabled list. Ken was sent back down to AAA Tucson until September call-ups. Ken hit just 181 in 30 games with the Astros in 1988. Interestingly though, his platoon splits reversed themselves. He hit 205 against right-handed pitching while posting just a 125 mark against lefties, again in a super small sample. Just as they had in 1987, the Astros faded down the stretch as the Dodgers ran away with the NL West behind Oral Hershiser's MLB record 59 consecutive scoreless innings. The Astros wound up finishing fifth in the NL West in 1988, despite a winning record. Bill Wood may have realized it was time for a rebuild, or at least a retool. The Astros had a strong run of success in the 80s, but had an aging roster that couldn't keep up with Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Cincinnati. Following 1988, the Astros began to reshape their roster. Nolan Ryan was granted free agency and signed with the Texas Rangers, for whom he pitched for through 1993. Denny Walling had been traded in August, and Buddy Bell was among several veterans whom were granted free agency. Hal Lanier was fired and replaced at manager by Art Howe. The Astros were slowly changing the complexion of the team, making room for the next wave. The 1989 season was promising for Ken Caminiti. It was his first chance to be a full-time major leaguer, but it wouldn't go by without its share of drama. On the next episode of Secondary Lead, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti. Ken establishes himself as one of the slickest fielding third basemen in baseball. Bill Wood makes several key trades to lay the foundation for the next run of Astros' success, including tinkering with the idea of trading Ken several times. And Caminiti meets two of his best friends in baseball. Greg Biggio, and Jeff Bagwell. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or a review, and spread the word by telling a friend. Follow us at Secondary Lead on Twitter and Instagram, like our Facebook page, and check out show extras on YouTube. Music is courtesy of PurplePlanet.com and the YouTube Audio Library. Our theme was written and performed by Jim Montgomery and Chris Cottrell. I'm Joe Vasile. Thanks for listening. <laughs>